An ancient Chinese proverb says, If your enemy wrong thee, by each of his children a drum. An ancient Chinese proverb says, Are you with me this morning? You know what a drum is? You know what an end? Okay, well, never mind. All right. Uh, we're taking another step with Jesus today, and he just continues to take us beyond ourselves in this Sermon on the Mount. I have a section of my history that uh, has been a lot of fun, and yet one of the instances out of it was not a whole lot of fun at all. Um, I had, when we lived in Edinburgh, I had a couple of dogs. Actually, it was a... Um, the female was the mother of two different litters of puppies, and uh, she was a lab mix. And what she was mixed with, I don't know, German Shepherd or something like that, but she was a big dog. And uh, she had her first litter of puppies, and my oldest son was about to go off to college, and he said, Dad, I, I want one of the puppies so that I can take it with me when I go off to school. And I said, okay, that's fine. Uh, and then he didn't go off to school. And uh, stayed at home, so I had more dogs than I needed. Uh, we had two in the backyard, two big uh, lab mixes, and one in the house that was a poodle. I've told you about her before. Her name was Misha. She was actually a hoodle, which is part human and part poodle, and she kind of ran the house. And we had her for a long time, 14 years. About a year ago now, we had to put her down because she got blind and she got deaf and she got no teeth, and uh, that made it hard for her to have a good time living. And uh, so I had a problem with these two outside dogs in that they loved to get out at night. They started digging underneath the fence, and we lived about, I don't know, a couple of hundred yards from an irrigation canal that actually stretched all the way to the Rio Grande River, but it went to some farming areas close by and also to the golf course that was pretty near our house. And so these dogs got to where they would get out at night and go over to the canal and swim and, you know, terrorize the neighborhood, I'm sure. And so for a stretch of time, I got on a first-name basis with the uh, animal control officer for the city of Edinburgh. And finally, one day he came and he said, uh, Mr. Rotramon, you're going to have to do something about these dogs. I can't keep getting complaints from the neighbors. I said, okay, can I borrow your gun? And he said, I don't carry a gun. I said, okay, well, I'll have to come up with a different solution then. And so what I did, by the way, I didn't really ask for the gun, just in case you're thinking, well, he's so mean. Um, this is more mean what I did. Because uh, I decided that what I needed to do was to electrify my fence. Now, actually, I had a chain link fence. And so what I did was I just got an electric fence, just a single wire. And I hooked it up around the perimeter of the fence on the inside, about this high off of the ground. Now, the idea of that is that when a dog went to dig underneath it and to go under the fence, he had to hit that hot wire. Now, let me just tell you, if you've never watched a dog discover electricity, you have missed a real treat. <laughs> it's not enough to hurt them, so for the, don't send you know, no SPCA letters to me or anything like that, uh, it's, but it's enough to grab their attention. And these two dogs that we had in the backyard, they got it. I mean, like about twice hitting that hot wire, they were done with the fence. They would walk up right up to the edge of it and step back and look, and I could try to call them through the gate. They would not budge. I mean, they got the message that there was a devil in the fence or something as far as a dog was concerned. Now, here's where the problem came in. Around one of the gates, the way we had built that fence, 
uh, it was difficult to put that line the way I needed to. And so I was experimenting with a couple of different ways to do it. And uh, what I ended up doing was kind of building a little bit of a chute there so that we could open the gate. And so I, I staked that line out into the yard. And uh, remember, it's about this high off of the ground. And so now, now I need to transfer you inside because this hoodle that we had, uh, we taught her to hate cats. And I mean by that, I would say get the cat and she would go nuts, almost climb the back door. And uh, so occasionally I would do that, you know, just get boring inside when the kids were gone or something. So I'd say, get the cat. And she'd just go nuts. And so I'd throw the door open and she would hook it out into the backyard. Well, on one particular day, after I put that electric fence out there, I said to this blind dog of mine, get the cat. So she runs to the back door. She runs out the back door when I throw it open, and she heads over to the gate, not knowing that I had built that thing sticking out, and she ran right into that hot water. Now, it was funny when it was my son's dog that was, you know, discovering electricity, but when it was my wife's dog, it was not nearly as funny. So Misha hit that hot wire and immediately started yelling, and then she flipped over on top of it. So she's, it's, it's bad. Let's just say it's bad, all right? And my wife is none too happy about this scene. So I ran out there and I grabbed Misha. And when I grabbed her off of that hot wire, I was careful not to touch it. But she didn't care about any of that. All she knew was something had her and she was going to fight back. When I grabbed her, she latched onto my thumb. And I still have a scar there from when she tore my thumb nearly off of my body, lashing out. Now, I tell you that not so that you'll know just how terrible a human I am, but as a great illustration for us of how we respond when somebody wrongs us. Our tendency, the human nature that we all carry, is to lash out and retaliate. Ancient Chinese proverb When your enemy wrongs you by each of his sons a drum. There we go. Thank you very much. Tell me that's not how we think and how we act. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus now takes us another step. When we're wronged, how should kingdom people respond? Jesus takes us to a place here that I don't mind telling you stretches me I'm in good company with that because as we've looked through uh, church history we can find that this particular passage of scripture is one of the most problematic for us not at the point of interpreting it but at the point of applying it and so what you'll find as you look back through the history of Christian Bible study and theology is you'll find people, scholars, some of the great names of Christian history who are on all sides of the fence now when it comes to how we're supposed to take what Jesus says. Now I hope that I say that well enough for you here at the front end of this message that by the time we get to the end of it with all of the questions that you're still going to have about how it relates to us on a day-to-day basis you'll at least hear that you're going to be in good company if you still have questions 
So what I want to try to do is at least explain what's going on here well enough and maybe make a couple of points of application that will help us as we go out from this place as we continue to live the questions of our faith. And this is one of those passages that certainly moves us to do that. Once again, the basic issue for us is how do we respond or how should we respond when somebody wrongs us? I was watching the news this morning. Nothing like when Fox News gives me illustrations for the sermon of the day. I was watching the news this morning, and they ran an art- a news article on there about a guy who has developed an electronic device that jams cell phone signals. Did you see that? As best I could tell from what was happening, because I was listening with one ear and doing some other stuff, as best I could tell, this guy got kind of upset about the fact that people were talking on their cell phones loudly, and it got into his space. And he's smarter than I am, because what he did is he went and developed and built this device that jams the frequency so that people, like in a subway car, can't talk on their phones because his device takes the signal away. Now, I use that to help you understand that it's not just those big things that people throw at us that causes us issues. All of us struggle with enough issue of control that when somebody threatens our control, then we tend to want to react against that. What does Jesus say relative to that? Well, he starts with the Old Testament. That's what he's done in each of these five, or this is the fifth now, of six examples as he begins to flesh out for his disciples what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a child of God as it relates to how we live out our lives on a day-to-day basis. He starts with the Old Testament and the teachings there. And he says, this is in verse 38, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And let me stop there for just a second. Now, Jesus is pulling from their traditions. It's from the law. Three different passages of Scripture, Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy chapter 19. All of them refer to this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It came to be referred to as the lex talionis, the law of retribution. Now, one of the things that we have to understand, Jesus is quoting uh, is actually taking these three different passages and boiling it down to the basic teaching. But he's referring to passages, if you look at those three in the Old Testament, you'll find that they were specifically tied to a legal context, a court of law kind of context. In other words, when Moses was given the law by God and then passed it on to the children of Israel, part of what Moses does is he helps us to see that this law of retribution is to be decided in the courts. Those three passages specifically tie it to the courts and to the judges and how they decide. And the, the whole point of it all was to begin to regulate the retaliation that was so much a part of their lives. Remember, the children of Israel, when they got that, had been in Egypt in captivity. They'd been slaves. They were in a society where, well, let's just say the Rotramal clan would have been welcome. You remember what I said a while back? You squirt me with a water gun, and I run over you with my truck. Does that communicate to you? Okay, first of all, I don't have a truck, all right? So you just know it's not really there. Some of you saw this morning, I drove up, and there was a sheriff sitting out there next to my office. And so I got out, and I was talking to the sheriff. Several people came in and said, I saw you talking to the law. They found you out there, right? No, I I haven't done anything to anybody, okay? 
Uh, he was just using our parking lot. But the water gun truck scenario is representative of many people, maybe many of us in this room. That was part of Israel's life before the law. In Egypt, after Egypt, when somebody would wrong them, it would be all bets are off and I can do as much as I want to to get you back. So the law of retaliation we find in those three passages in the Old Testament were written specifically to limit the retaliation. An eye for an eye means like for like. It doesn't mean a house for an eye. It doesn't mean I can take your eye because you took mine, but then I can also take your son and your wife and have them murdered because of it. Just because you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. By the way, let me just jump right into the middle of American society with this right now. In our legal system, we have the opportunity for us to be protected by the law. But there are those people who take this part of human nature and they go to seed on it. And so you'll find commercials where attorneys will say, when something like that happens, I'm meaner in a junkyard dog. You know who I'm talking about? Or the, the strong, call the strong arm. You listen, you listen to what those guys are saying. They're saying, you've been wronged. And I'm going to make these other people pay beyond your imagination and you can have money in your pocket. Building off of our innate sense of greed and our innate sense of you wronged me and so now you owe me. American society is eaten up with the need for teaching that regulates offense. Let's be careful that we don't just throw it off on those attorneys and others because this kind of stuff happens in our day-to-day lives also. Now, my wife's not here today. She's not feeling well this morning, so uh, I'm going to tell you the truth of this story. She can come back and give you her version of it. But uh, one time when we uh, were newlyweds, we got into this deal where it was kind of uh, practical joke stuff, and I already told you a little bit about some of that uh, as it related to my car a while back. But um, we got into this deal, practical jokes, and she did something to me, and I don't really remember what it was, but it was, you know, not really that big of a deal, I'm sure. But again, family motto is, she squirt me the water gun, I run over you in my truck. So I got a truck, and I put it in the form of a bucket full of cold water, and I put it in the refrigerator for a long time. And then I caught her one day when she wasn't looking, and I threw that bucket of cold water on her. Now, I did it because I I needed to get her back for something that she had done to me earlier. Now, she didn't see it that way. As a matter of fact, those were the days when divorce became a very real option in our family, I think. But it set in motion this, okay, now I'm going to have to get you back, and it's a bigger, better get back than what you got with in the first place. Does that communicate to us? You know, See how we do that? It escalates. And so what starts as something simple, even in a marriage context, and maybe it's a word that's thrown out in a discussion, and it offends you to the point that the next time you get the chance, you throw out a sentence. 
And the next time she gets a chance, she throws out a paragraph. And before it's over with, we're throwing utensils or pans or whatever it might be. The law of retaliation, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It was a problem in Moses' time with Israel. It was a problem in Jesus' time with Israel. And it's a problem with us. Here's another family, uh, Road Trammel family motto for you. Forgive and forget, but always remember. The human condition is to retaliate. I'm going to come back to that in just a little bit as we talk about what we do about it. First thing I want to do is make sure that we're all on the same page to realize that this was not just a problem for Moses and the children of Israel wandering in the desert. This captures humanity in our day. Now what Jesus did is he took it and he explained well, I guess the best exposed is probably the way I want to say this. Exposed for them some of what was happening in the first century context. Because it was tied in the Old Testament law into the courts. But by the time we get to the first century, the scribes and the Pharisees had moved this law of retaliation into everyday life. And so they were actively about the process of saying, okay, when somebody harms you, you have the responsibility to get them back. You see the difference? What we find in the Old Testament was really dealing with one's rights and limiting those rights. But by the time we get to the New Testament, it now becomes a responsibility for an individual to get back at the person who got to them. And it also was taken out of the courts. But when it was in the courts, which was on occasion, they had taken it off of the eye for the eye part and it became a monetary thing. And how much is an eye worth, really? That becomes important when we see the explanations that we have here. What I want you to see as we take this next step is that revenge and retaliation is very much a part of our society today. I'm told, I've never seen it, I've seen the commercials, that there's a popular television show now that's called Revenge. It fits. It fits with guys like, some. I'll date myself a little bit. Some of you will remember a guy named Dirty Harry. And you'll remember a guy named Charles Bronson in Death Wish movies. And you'll remember a guy named Russell Crowe who played in a movie called Gladiator. Where when he's given the opportunity to identify himself before this particular ruler, he identifies himself as the father of a murdered son, the husband of a murdered wife, and I shall have my revenge. The watchword of our day is getting my rights and making somebody pay. The problem with that is it violates the great commandment where Jesus said, love God and love people. As a matter of fact, where he says, and love people, where we get that out of the two great commandments, comes out of Leviticus chapter 19. Spencer has that for us. Look at what it says. Now look, look specifically at the, at the last part, because this is the part that Jesus quotes, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But in the law, when Jesus gives it, I mean, when it's given in the first place, and Jesus quotes it, the first part of it says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Pharisees got locked up on okay, so who's my neighbor? And Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan to help them understand that. Vengeance, retaliation, 
is a problem. Thanks, Spencer. So go back to this passage in Matthew and look what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, that's the principle of this passage. What he says after that are going to be four different examples as that plays out in life. But let's stop with the principle first. Do not resist the one who is evil. Okay? So what does that mean? You know that there is a whole strand of church history who has taken this particular statement that Jesus makes and argued that Christians should be pacifists. Now, this one guy that I'm about to refer to is not a Christian, was not a Christian, but he studied Christianity. His name was Mahatma Gandhi, a proponent for pacifism. He learned his pacifism from Leo Tolstoy, who most of you would know from War and Peace, but Tolstoy was also a Christian thinker. And he took this passage to be one for pacifism, that Christians should never raise a hand, should never do anything against anybody that opposes them. Martin Luther uh, had a guy that he knew, he called him the crazy saint. Now one of the reasons that he referred to him that way is because this particular saint that Luther's talking about had lice. You understand lice? This guy had lice, but because he didn't feel like he could raise his hand against anything that came against him, he refused to treat the lice that he had. He said that if he did that, it would be the equivalent of raising his hand against God and against what God had told him to do. So he lived with lice. Let me just tell you, if you have lice, get some help, please. Okay? So many Christian people have taken this and they've isolated this one statement and they've argued with it that Christians should never have any kind of a response to any kind of offense. Some have even taken it as a nation to say that a Christian nation, whatever that is, should never go to war. Well, let me just make sure, if you happen to lean that way, that you take all of this in context. Let's back up very quickly. Jesus is preaching a sermon. This sermon has one central focus. Chapter 5, verse 20. But your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, or you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus has been doing now is systematically opening that up, unpacking it for us to see that what he means by that is an exterior-based religion is not what God has in mind for us. It is a religion of the heart. It is based on a relationship with a holy God. And he says to us, you have to love me, you have to love people. And here's what that looks like as you live it out. And so we've had now five different examples of what this surpassing righteousness looks like. It's not just about don't murder. It's about change your heart when it comes to anger. It's not just about don't uh, commit adultery. It's about change your heart when it comes to lust. And so now it comes to this discussion about how we treat people, particularly the ones who wrong us. 
It is important that we recognize and hold on to the fact that Jesus also said back in verse 13 through 16 that you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Everything that he's doing for us is laying out for us what the Christian life is to look like because what it's supposed to look like is what God uses to draw people to himself. One of the reasons this is such a difficult passage for so many Christian people is because we want to hold on to that base part of our nature that says I have my rights, I have my personal respect for myself, and you can't infringe on that. And if you do, I'll make you pay the price. Jesus now gives us a teaching that if we follow will set us apart from the world at large. Four different examples help us to see what that's like. So let's read what those are. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Probably many of you have heard the explanation that most scholars give us about this. They say, some say, 90% of the world's population is right-handed. If that is the background for what Jesus is talking about, most scholars believe it is, that a right-handed person, in order to slap somebody on the right cheek, if they're standing face-to-face, would have to do so with the backhand because to do it with a forehand would be on their left side of their cheek. Now, that's significant. Because in Jewish society, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, when it went to the law, to the legal system, they said that a simple slap on the face, which would be right hand to the left side of the face, is worth one unit, whatever unit of of money we're talking about, let's say a dollar. If somebody slapped you on the left side of your face, that's a dollar. But if they did so with the backhand onto the right side of your face, that is a personal insult in a public kind of setting, and it's worth four dollars not one. So what Jesus seems to be doing is taking something right out of their day-to-day living and he's saying to them, when somebody insults you, what do you do? Well, what he says is you just turn the other cheek to them. Now, let me just, let me just be real transparent with you. Don't try this with me, okay? Now, I want to be a God-fearing, God-honoring person, but if you slap me, that human part of me might just jump out. I'm not sure, but it might, okay? Matter of fact, I'd just say that for me because I think it's probably true for you too. I'm not likely to come up and slap you. Jesus lays a standard out here that at face value, is difficult for us to do. Now, some of you say, no, I would never hit you back. Okay, I'll buy that because I think there are some people who just are not, you know, aggressive enough to do that. But I'll challenge you about what thought processes happen as you're not slapping somebody back. Because the average person hears something like that and they jump to... I'm going to run over you with my truck. If only I could get away with it, I'd do this. Make no mistake, Jesus lays the principle out. Don't resist the one who's evil. And then he starts illustrating it, and the illustrations are hard to swallow. Here's the second one. 
And if anyone would sue you uh, and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. A little first century background helps you out here. The tunic was what we would call a t-shirt. Okay, It's that piece of clothing that they wore next to their body. The cloak was the one that went over the top of that, maybe an overcoat or that kind of a thing. So the picture here, first of all, if somebody's being sued for their tunic, then this is the lowest level of economic society that is being sued. All right? It's somebody who doesn't have anything else that the person who's after them would want. The picture is of a merciless creditor coming after the last thing that somebody has to offer. Now, in Jewish law, you, if you sued for the cloak, you could do that, but it wasn't worth your trouble because according to Jewish law, the cloak had to be returned to the person at night because they used it for cover, they used it for a pillow, they used it to carry grain and that kind of stuff in. And so the picture here is that somebody doesn't go after the outer clothing, they go after the last piece of clothing the person has to offer. And what does Jesus say? If they come to sue you for that, for your t-shirt, just go ahead and give them your overcoat too. Let me ask you, take the mental picture to its logical conclusion, what does this person have to wear to town? What in the world is Jesus getting at with this teaching? I'm pretty sure he's not advocating a bunch of naked townspeople who don't have any clothes because they've been sued and they gave up everything they had. So what is he saying? Well, look at there, I'm out of time, so you'll just have to go figure out for yourself what he's saying. Let's take the next one. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Okay, now Jesus gets downright anti-patriotic here. You see, the Romans had occupied the land of Palestine. The Romans were the occupying force, and the Jews were there living in their homeland, homeland, not at all happy about the Romans being there. The Romans had a law that said a soldier, a government official, could go up to anybody and impress them into service to compel them to carry their sack for them, their backpack kind of thing, okay? 60 to 80 pounds. But Roman law limited that to one mile. Now, don't think in our terms of a mile. That was 1,000 steps, and the Jews knew that. And they hated the occupying forces coming in saying to them, hey, pick up my stuff and carry it for me because they didn't want the Romans to be there in the first place, much less to have to work for them. And so the good Jews would pick it up because they had to and they would count themselves a thousand steps. And when they got to number 1,000, they would throw it down and turn around and walk off because they had completed their duty. Jesus now takes that picture and he says, when they compel you to do one mile, Go ahead and carry it too. What is he saying with this? Why would Jesus push some kind of an agenda like this? This is that part where the average person in Jesus' day would have been smart enough not to take on a Roman soldier with what he's telling them to do. And so Jesus knew that in their minds they would be doing the thing, but their minds would be doing something else to that Roman soldier. Passive-aggressive might be a good term for us. 
I like the story of Andre Dawson. Played professional baseball years ago, and uh, he, he got in trouble in a game because they called a strike on him, and he didn't think it was a strike, so he started arguing with the umpire. Ultimately, the umpire threw him out of the game, and Major League Baseball fined him $1,000 for the tirade that he threw there at the plate and made him pay $1,000. Somebody asked him later, did you pay the fine? He said, yes, I did. He said, but on the check for $1,000, on the memo section, I wrote, donation for the blind. Now, that's us. Okay, we are Andre Dawson. Because on the things that we can't retaliate about, we do it under protest. I mentioned last week, I'll mention it again because it's a great time of the year. In just a few short weeks, you're going to have the opportunity to write a check to Uncle Sam. And most of you, I hope all of you are smart enough that if you owe Uncle Sam more money, that you'll pay it. Okay, don't be dumb. Pay it if you owe it. But many of us, in the back of our minds, will be griping and complaining, and if we could do something about it, we would. Is Jesus saying, under no circumstance should you ever take a stand for what's right just because somebody comes at you with what's wrong? It's a good question. If you're looking for an answer, I'll challenge you to go read the accounts of the arrest and the trial of Jesus before his crucifixion. When he took a stand with some of them who made some accusations, started beating on him, and he stopped him. He said, hey, wait a minute. If you're doing that because I deserve it, so be it. But if I don't deserve it, then what do you think you're doing? Doesn't sound like pacifism to me. Go check it out. So what what do we get here? I guess I hadn't read the last one yet. So the fourth one, he says, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. (laughs) So some of us now, we've been hearing the rest of it going, Okay, well, that's good enough. All right, I I hadn't been asked by a Roman soldier to carry anything. I'm good with that. But now, somebody comes and asks you for something. What do you do with that? Is Jesus saying that every person who walks up to this church on a given day and they walk up here all the time wanting some kind of handout, some kind of help, is he saying that we should never say no? Is he saying that we should go to the finance committee and say, open the checkbooks because people are needing money? You see why Christian people for centuries now have been choking on these verses? The actual... Living them out challenges us. So let me see if I can give you an answer or two before we go. I want to first of all take you back to the Beatitudes. We started this whole series by looking at the Beatitudes. I told you that it was an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Everything that would follow would be found in the Beatitudes. What does it take to be the kind of person that when you are assaulted by somebody else that you don't immediately assault back? One of the Beatitudes says, blessed are the merciful. The condition of mercy being present in your life that you can see somebody who comes at you for what they really are, not just an attacker. Another one says, blessed are the peacemakers. As I said then, the peace doers. Doesn't seem to be any qualifications on that. How about the one that Jesus says at the end, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
All of those things wrap up to me that Jesus is not just throwing out a theory here and he thinks, you know, this sounds good. He knows how life is for us. And he knows that this is one of the basic problems that humanity has. What better way for a Christian to stand out in the crowd than for him to say, I don't have to retaliate. You remember a while back I told you about my son who was assaulted when he was a freshman in high school. According to the testimony, the deposition given by the emergency room physician, my son was one blow to the head away from death in that attack. Even still, it elicits an emotional response for me. I wasn't mad. I was chapped. You know the difference? It's a good thing that I couldn't have done what I wanted to do for fear of the law because I'd have done something about that. I have another son. He's more like his daddy than the one who got attacked is because I made sure that I had him in a controlled environment when I told him what had happened to his brother because I knew that he'd go after that kid. And I wasn't sure that I even wanted to stop him. I got a problem, just like you got a problem, with what Jesus is saying is the standard here. But my son, the one who got attacked, I never understood it, except that it was a power of God in his life. Because when we started the legal process against the kid that attacked and nearly killed my son, my son continued to say, Don't push it, Dad. Just let it go, Dad. I don't want you to go after him, Dad. Just let it go. You know the number of people that came to me after that that said in one way or another, I cannot get over how at peace your son is about this. Mark, I can't get over how mature your son is as it relates to dealing with this attack. Salt and light. You and I as Christian people can strike out and go after those who do wrong to us and we'll be just like the crowd. But the one who can find the line and take a stand and let God be the one who gives the justice... That's the one who stands out in the crowd. I'd love to tell you I've arrived on this one. But it's just like the rest of them. I hadn't arrived yet. I'll, I'll live the questions with you. I'll be transparent enough to tell you. I'm not going to stand up here and say, here it is. I've got it done. Now you get it down. I'm not going to do that with you. This is tough stuff. And just about the time you think you got it wired, something else comes along and knocks you down. So how do you get there? Let me just take you to a passage of Scripture. I didn't tell Spencer about this one, so I'll, I'll just read it. This is in Romans chapter 12. Listen to what Paul says, verse 17 and following. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable with all. Beloved 
Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. <laughs> now, let me stop for a second. I like that. Okay? I can do you some harm if you do me harm, but the wrath of God, <laughs> that scares me for you. And Paul says, leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You know the key to being able to do what Jesus is telling us here? It's a good, solid dose of God's justice and his sovereignty. Where we can say, God, handle it, please. And then Paul Oh, he kills me with this. Then Paul says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. <laughs> now, the passive-aggressive part of me says, oh, yeah, I'll do that, and then I'll sit back and watch him burn. And God says, you just, you don't get it. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And the promise is, I will repay. You want a sobering look at how God deals with people who reject him and his people? Go read the last part of the book of Revelation. When he comes riding in on a white horse, swinging a sword of justice. Movies have soundtracks. Without the soundtrack movie would be a lot less exciting. I think our lives sometimes need soundtracks. What would be your theme song? Some of us would choose the theme from Rocky. Some of us would choose the song by Taylor Swift. What a great theologian she has become. The story starts when it was hot and it was summer and I had it all. I had him right there where I wanted him. This is a story I'm told. The back, back story of this is she had a boyfriend and some slick actress came in and stole her boyfriend. True story. So Taylor Swift says, she came along, got him, all, uh, got him alone, and let's hear the applause. <laughs> she took him faster than you could say sabotage. I never saw it coming, wouldn't have expected it. I underestimated just who I was dealing with. She had to know the pain was beating on me like a drum. She underestimated who she was stealing from. Soon she's going to find stealing other people's toys on the playground won't make you many friends. She should keep in mind, she should keep in mind there is nothing I do better than revenge. I hope that's not the soundtrack for your life. Because Jesus says, let it go. Let's pray. Okay, Lord, I just don't like these kind of passages. But I'm glad that you've held us to them. And in doing so, you give us a formula that helps us to stand out in the crowd in our daily witness. Help us to be right. Help us to be honest. And help us to be humbled. In Jesus' name.